Please be seated. Well, good morning again. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we ask uh, that those words that we just sang together, that you would give your word success, that we would find that in our experience to be true this morning, Um, that you would meet every one of us exactly in the places where we find ourselves this morning, those of us who are here that have faith and those of us who are here that do not, those of us who are here that feel near to you, those of us who feel far away from you, Meet those of us who aren't entirely sure why we're even here. Meet the bored, meet the distracted ones among us. And through this word that we're going to read and talk about together, show us the word that is like us, that bears our flesh, that's seated at your right hand, praying for us. Show us the grace of Christ and change us by it. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, back at the end of July, uh, a pastor who had been prominent in some Christian circles dropped something of a bomb in his Instagram feed. Underneath the picture of him looking out over a lake, this is what he wrote, by all the measurements I have for defining a Christian, I am not a Christian. Now, I don't really know much of anything uh, about this guy at all. I've never read any of his books. I've never listened to any of his sermons. But that simple line really started me thinking, and it made me wonder. It made me wonder what his measurements for being a Christian are. Is it possible that he's tacked some things on that really aren't essential to the Christian faith? It made me wonder, is he rejecting faith in Jesus, or is he rejecting something else altogether? And... I honestly don't know the answers to those questions for him, but I think that the questions matter a lot for people like us. What do we believe? And I know that you know this, but in some corners of our world, in some places of our culture, that's becoming something that we talk less and less and less about, unless Increasingly, it is to say that we don't really believe anything. Uh, Last week, The Atlantic published an essay uh, by Michael Roth. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University in Connecticut. And this is what he wrote in that essay. He said, in my cultural history classes, we talk about sexuality and identity, violence and revolution, art and obscenity, And the students are generally eager to weigh in. But when I bring up the topic of religious feeling or practice, an awkward silence always ensues. If I go on to ask students how one knows in one's heart that one is saved, they turn back to their laptops. They look anywhere but at me for fear that I might ask them about feeling the love of God or having a heart filled with faith. Roth uh, identifies this deep cultural resistance, this deep cultural reluctance to talk openly and unashamedly about faith. 
Now, an interesting wrinkle in this essay is that Roth himself identifies as an atheist. He is not grinding one particular religious belief. His point in his words is that we should refuse to hide behind narrow definitions of critical thinking that might keep us from talking about the things that we believe. We should be talking to one another about what we believe. So we're going to do that together as a church in the coming weeks. We will look at the essentials of the Christian faith and we'll use the Apostles' Creed as our guide. This morning we're going to think together about just the first few words of the creed. I believe in God. And we're going to do that by reading a psalm that famous, famously begins by describing a people who do not believe in God. It's Psalm 14. So I'm going to read that for us, and you can follow along uh, in the order of worship where it's printed or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Well, my, uh, my oldest daughter, Ellie, uh, read all of Grimm's fairy tales when she was younger. Uh, if you're familiar at all with Grimm's fairy tales, you know that's no easy fa- feat. There's a bunch of them. And a few years back, she and I were talking about how crazily, how gruesomely often these Grimm's fairy tales end. And we were talking about how there's usually no moral, no pithy saying, no aphorism at the end to tie everything up. The way Ellie put it was this, everyone acts dumb in these stories. (laughs) And sometimes it works out for them. Sometimes they get away with it. It's in stark contrast, of course, to uh, Aesop's fables. If you're familiar with Aesop's fables, you know that they frequently end in tragedy. And they always, always end with a moral. You know the one about the, the eagle and the arrow? There's this majestic eagle, and he's flying through the sky, looking majestic, and he hears too late this arrow whizzing toward him through the air. Well, it it strikes him, and the arrow pierces him through, and he begins to flutter to the earth in death. And he looks at the arrow that is sticking out of him, and he realizes that it is feathered with feathers from his own wings. And he hits the ground, and the last words of this majestic eagle are, how often we give our enemies the means of our own destruction. Okay, kids, good night. Sleep tight. (laughs) 
But you know that's how Aesop's fables work. They focus on the tragedy of folly in order to teach wisdom. And that is precisely how Psalm 14 works, too. It teaches us wisdom, but it does not do it directly. Instead, it teaches wisdom by focusing on folly and the tragedy that follows after folly. It doesn't end with a pithy moral or an aphorism or a saying that ties it all together. Psalm 14 ends with a prayer. God, save us from this foolishness. And church, that is a prayer that God has gladly answered for people like us. So what is the folly in this psalm? Well, it's stated about as simply as it can be stated right there in the first sentence of the psalm. I mean, if you know anything at all about Psalm 14, it is probably this line. It gets quoted all of the time. Here it is. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. So I need to say a few things about this. First, uh, when Scripture talks about fools and when Scripture talks about folly, it has nothing whatsoever to do with intellectual ability. It has nothing whatsoever to do with knowing a lot of stuff or being smart. People who haven't been to school, people who haven't read a lot of books or whatever, can be uh, incredibly wise or incredibly foolish. And by the same token, people who have been educated, people who are learned, they can be huge fools or they could be stunningly wise. And that's because in Scripture, wisdom and folly are not intellectual categories. In Scripture, wisdom and folly are moral categories. That's an important thing to get right. All through Scripture, this thread runs. In fact, last week we talked together about some teaching of Jesus about wisdom and and folly. It's important to get this right, and we'll come back to it in a minute. But first let me say another thing about that opening line. I'm very aware that it's easy to hear that opening line and to think to yourself, oh, okay, this is a psalm uh, about atheists. The fool says in his heart, there's no God. And maybe some of you hear that and you're thinking, okay, well, that's not me. And I know that there are some of us here this morning who may be in a different spot, who are pretty sure um, that maybe God doesn't exist. We're pretty sure, if not completely sure, that he doesn't. And there's others of us somewhere in the middle who wonder about it. And if you're in one of those last two categories, maybe you're thinking you're going to feel really singled out. (laughs) So I just want to let the air out of that and say that everybody, including me, is going to be singled out in this psalm. Because this is emphatically a psalm for every one of us who is sitting here this morning. And that's because this isn't a psalm about what we might call a philosophical atheism, not of the serious academic kind or the more populist New York Times best-selling kind. There were very few of what we might call philosophical atheists, very few, if any at all, of those kind of folks running around in the ancient Near East when this psalm was written. They certainly would not have been present in Israel or in her nearest neighbor's No, this psalm is about what we might call a functional atheism. 
The psalm is about ordering our life without any reference at all to God. This psalm is a psalm about acting like God does not exist. It's about dampening our awareness of his existence, dampening or suppressing our awareness of his presence, whether we do that consciously or unconsciously. And the dead giveaway that this is true, the dead giveaway that that's what this psalm is about is because the psalmist locates this assertion about there being no God in a very sensitive, very telling place, (laughs) the heart. She says in her heart, there is no God. And as far as scripture is concerned, the heart is the controlling center for human beings. The stuff that we think, the stuff that we do, the stuff that we say, our essential identity as human beings, it flows out from our hearts. And that means then that the things that we love, the things that we treasure, the things that we desire, the things that we want, those things end up being the things that order our lives. Jesus, uh, I think, says this very clearly when he says, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And then, like we heard in the gospel lesson, out of the abundance of our hearts, we produce good or evil. What we love, what we treasure in our hearts, that's what controls us from the moment we get out of bed in the morning. And frankly, I know this. Listen, you don't need to be a philosopher. You don't need to be a theologian. You don't even need to know that Jesus said this stuff to know that it's true about being a human being because you're a human being, and I am too. We know this is true. (laughs) The things we desire, the things that we love, these are the things that lead us to do and say all that we do and all that we say. And that's why I say Psalm 14 is about functional atheism. It really isn't relevant at all if the fool at the heart of the psalm is intellectually convinced that God exists or not because as far as how his life is going to play out, the matter is settled. As far as how he's going to live his life, God will not play a part in the ordering of it. And church, throughout scripture, this take is the essence of human foolishness. It's the essence of human foolishness because as far as scripture is concerned, it is a fundamental misunderstanding of the created order. It is a fundamental misunderstanding of our place inside the created order. Scripture says that this is the essence of foolishness because to act this way goes against our own human instinct. It goes against the grain of the world. Uh, Josh Larson is one of the hosts of the great film spotting podcast. And he's written a book called Movies Are Prayers. And in it, he contends that all movies, it doesn't really matter who made them, all movies can be read and all movies can be seen and interpreted as prayers because they exhale our human experience out toward God. And what he's getting at is that human instinct, that grain of the world. 
that thing that we kind of know when we kind of talk to the God we really hope is there. So I'm sure that he knows as he's writing this that he's going to have skeptics, so he teases it out a little and he asks, well, what uh, exactly is prayer? And this is how he answers. You already know. (laughs) You already know. You've prayed, even if you haven't set foot in in a church in years or ever. You've longed, you've desired, you've marveled, you've groaned, you've looked around at the beauty of the world and said, wow. You've seen great suffering as Sheriff Ed Tom Bell did in No Country for Old Men and asked, why? Who is it that you are praising? Why are you and the sheriff bothering to complain? Man, I love that line. Why are you and the sheriff bothering to complain? I think Larson makes a compelling point about being human, and that is that we already know. We instinctively long for things and we cry out for things. Human beings instinctively complain to the air about stuff. We know that there's more to our existence. We know it in our bones that there is more to our existence than the stuff that we can see with our eyes and feel with our hands. But sometimes we push that down. Sometimes we try to explain it away. And sometimes we just ignore it. And church, you absolutely, positively do not need to be an atheist to make that move. All kinds of Christians, including this preacher, make that move all of the time. And scripture is resolute to people like us. That is not wise. So before we move past the first six words of this psalm, I think it's really good for people like us, no matter who we are, no matter what we believe sitting here this morning, to ask ourselves some questions. What is my love? (laughs) What do I treasure the most? What or who is the fundamental organizing principle in my life? And do the answers to those questions go against my human instinct? Do they go against the grain of the world or with it? So the psalm, the rest of the psalm, paints a picture of life that is not lived out in reference to the Creator. It paints a picture of life that is lived under scattered and chaotic organizing principles, and it is not pretty. The psalmist creates this really evocative image. To me, it is... um, It's striking and and maybe um, scary. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand. If there are any who seek God. And then the psalmist goes on to paint this picture of what it is that God sees when he looks. 
And what he sees is the tragedy that follows after folly. A chaotic wasteland. That's what the bulk of the psalm is about. The fool has turned aside and become corrupt and they have no knowledge. But we know this. You and I know this already. It isn't just the case that the foolish become certain kinds of people. That's not, that's not all that happens. We know this because we're human beings. The life of the heart never remains just the life of the heart. <laughs> and we know this because we're human beings. The life of my heart, the desires and wants of my heart always spill out into the flesh and blood of real life. Your desires, your loves, your wants spill out into the common life of the world. This is how it works. Spouses get affected, children get affected, friends get affected, communities get affected. And that's why the psalmist talks about corruption and abominable deeds and not even one of them doing good. And this is where we have to come back to that thing that I talked about at the beginning about wisdom and folly not being intellectual categories, but instead moral categories. Because in this psalm, just like in our lives, the disordered loves of the foolish work themselves out in life in very, very painful ways. Psalm 14 isn't exactly letting us in on a secret, though. We kind of know this already. If my motivations are messed up, I do things that hurt other people. We know this is true. But that's how wisdom works. It describes the grain of human life as it is, as you and I experience it. And it does it so that we'll take a look at it. And we'll stop for just a moment and meditate on it. And think about it so that maybe we will become wise and change our course. So the psalm describes a couple of the painful ways others are affected by the folly of the foolish. There's one of them in verse 6. They shame the plans of the poor. We have a name for that, of course. It's called exploitation. There's another one in verse 4. They eat up my people as they eat bread. I want to talk about that one for a minute. That is a striking metaphor, eating up people like bread. It is a picture of abstracting someone. It is a picture of somehow making another person less than human, removing from them their worth and their dignity and their value in order to use them, in order to consume them, in order to eat them for our own benefit. And of course, this happens all around us in really super obvious ways. That impulse, the impulse to consume someone else for our benefit, that is the engine behind any kind of human trafficking that happens in our world. That impulse, the impulse to consume another for my own benefit, is the engine that drives the making of pornography and the use of pornography. That impulse, 
the impulse to consume another for my benefit is what drives much of the violence that happens in our great city every day. But yeah, it happens that way. And it also happens in less obvious ways that are just as real and just as corrosive. I mean, what is gossip about at its essence? Isn't it about exploiting someone else for our own benefit? Isn't it about consuming them? In order to feel better about ourselves or in order to look sharper and more competent in front of our peers, in order to gain someone's trust because we've let them in on something. But in order to do that, in order for these things to actually work, we have to extract, we have to strip the person that we're talking about. We have to abstract them. We have to strip them of their worth and their dignity and their values before they could be any good to us at all for the ends that we want to use them for. And church, which of us can say that we've never played the fool like that? None of us, I think. Certainly I can't say I've never played the fool like that. And I bring this stuff up because this is the thing that moves us towards the, the, the painful, pulsating folly of this psalm. The reality of this psalm is to recognize that we all have some of this foolishness bound up in us. As one commentator, Riley, put it, fool is not some rare subclass of the human race. And church, when we're playing the fool, we can trace it back every single time to pretending or forgetting or suppressing the truth that we have been made by the Creator for something more, something good, something beautiful. So like I said before, the Apostle Paul uses this psalm in his letter to his friends in the church in Rome to make precisely this point in Romans 3, our call to confession this morning. He quotes from Psalm 14, and he says, listen, the whole world is accountable to God for this stuff. It's the culmination of an argument that he'd been making from the beginning of the letter, which just so happens to be the same argument as Psalm 14. And here's... Here's how Paul says it to his friends in Rome. When human beings don't acknowledge God, our hearts go dark. Claiming to be wise, he says, they become fools. That's how Psalm 14 works. It is devastatingly simple. When we fail to make God our greatest love, we inevitably fail to love our neighbors as well. If he is not our greatest love, treasure, or desire, then all of the other loves, treasures, and desires, even the super good ones, get all jumbled and disordered and chaotic. But church, you and I, we have been made for something different. We have been made for something better. We have been made for something beautiful. 
Because at the heart of the Christian faith is this stubborn contention, this incredibly stubborn and beautiful contention that we have been made for God and that you and I are our best selves. We are our truest selves. We are the humans that we were intended to be when we have first made him our first love. We become, we become the people that we were created to be. And church, this is true for a million reasons, but not the least of which is this, because in God, in Him, in His life, at the center of God's life, is a triune community of love. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it burns red, hot, and pure, this love. And to make God our first love. I know this sounds incredible. It sounds unbelievable. It tests every part of our hearts to believe it. But it's absolutely true. To make him our first love is to be given entrance into that love. (laughs) It is to be given entrance into the red-hot burning communion of God's love. And when we enter into that life through repentance and faith in Jesus, we are changed. <laughs> it's to be given of our, to be forgiven of our foolishness. For sure, we are forgiven of our foolishness. Jesus steps in and plays the fool for us. He takes the blame for us. The Apostle Paul said that Jesus became to us the wisdom of God. <laughs> and after we're forgiven, we are slowly changed because Jesus makes foolish people wise. He turns us into lovers like he is a lover. And that church is scripture's vision of a wise person. Real wisdom is God's self-giving love cultivated in our lives until it overflows through us to the people around us. Church, that is scripture's vision of human wisdom to have the triune communion of love burning in us so that it overflows for the life of the world. The beginning of human wisdom is to confess with the creed, I believe in God. And that is the prayer at the end of the psalm. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortune of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. And church, that is a prayer that God has gladly answered. I mean, think about it. The cross of Jesus, the death of Jesus is the loudest cry of there is no God that's ever been yelled in the history of the world. The height of functional atheism was reached when the world attempted to put God away forever. But this masterwork of folly has become for us the wisdom of God. It has become our forgiveness, our new life in the resurrected Jesus, who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. So let us rejoice. Let us be glad. Let us believe in God. Let me pray for us. 
Father, help us to believe. We begin with that famous prayer, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to believe that this thing that sounds so amazing that we can barely get our just the tip of our finger on it, that to enter into your life is to enter into the communion of love that has existed forever. Help us to believe that that is true, not just with our heads, but with every part of who we are into our flesh and blood. Father, do this for our good and do this for the good of the broken world around us. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.